Hello, and welcome to Women With Books. I'm your host, author, Lindsay Emery. I know, I know, you're only here for the Sarah McLean episode, and you will not regret it. It is great, but I have you here, so I am going to do the announcements super quick. Okay, one, there's still time for you to let me know your ideas and suggestions for season three of Women With Books. Email me, shoot me a message on our Facebook page, but let me know because I always want to hear from you. Number two. Women with Books Summer Reading Challenge is going on. Uh, reference my last episode for all that detail. Reference my blog at lindsayemory.com forward slash blog. I've already seen uh, people start to use the hashtag on in, uh, social media. Hashtag Women with Books Summer Challenge or WWB Summer Challenge. And I'll do the same. Um, mark your books and we can talk about what everyone is reading this summer. Look for me on Instagram at Lindsay Emery. Number three, The Royal Runaway, my next book coming October 9th from Simon & Schuster Gallery Books is on pre-order. Go buy it. Number four, do you want to win a copy of Sarah McLean's latest? Sign up for the Women With Books newsletter for more details. And number five, Women With Books is open for sponsorship opportunities. Go to womenwithbooks.com and send me an email at lindsay at lindsayemory.com for more information. And now, finally, it's Sarah McLean, everyone. Welcome to Women With Books. I have today a very special guest, Sarah McLean. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you. So I want to start off telling you um, a little story. <laughs> Please. You, you signed a cover flat for me at an RWA. I cannot remember. It's probably the last time we were in New York, maybe San Antonio, but I think that might have been too early. Anyway, it was the cover flat for Never Judge a Lady by Her Cover. Oh, I love that cover. <laughs> I do too. And I keep it above my desk. And Aww. I don't think I'll ever put it down. And I do it, I'll tell you why. I do it to remind myself <clears throat> of that moment at the end of No Good Duke Goes Unpunished. Uh-huh. <laughs> that you're moment. Spo- I think you're about to spoil I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it. But everyone who knows Spoiler knows, alert, you guys. <laughs> if, if you don't know, go back and read this whole series. And you'll know. At the end of good, No Good Duke Goes Unpunished, there was a gasping moment where I just freaked out, immediately started ripping out all my copies of books, flipping through things. <laughs> and so you know, I Lindsay, keep... we can talk about it. If we like. can? It's I don't know. Long time. It's been four books. I feel like if, I feel like you're either, you either know it or you don't. I mean, all if right. you don't, you should probably stop or skip ahead. <laughs> yeah, skip ahead uh, 30 minutes or so. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> So at the end of this third, so you had a four book series and at the end of the third book, you revealed that one of the main characters was not a man as we had all been led to believe through our own. Well, had you been led to believe it? Right, right. No, no, no. (laughs) Through our own assumptions or perhaps prejudices. Sure. Um, we found out that he was a she, and everyone gasped. There was a gasp heard around Romance Land. Around the world. Um, yes. Yeah, well, it's, for those of you who haven't read that series, it's, um, it's the Rules of Scoundrel series, and um, 
when Lindsay says the main character, a main character, I think what she means for those of you who are romance readers, essentially the big Duke at the end, mm. um, the sort of like King vampire, big Duke, not that these are not that this person is a Duke or a vampire, but you know, it's like there's that series, <laughs> the, the person who everyone is waiting for their yes. book. You're waiting for the mysterious that, person. That hero was not a hero, but a heroine. Mm-hmm. And it was such an important moment for me as a reader and a oh, writer because, I mean, truly, it was a moment that you remember how fun and how good a book can be. And I always want to remember that. Um, well, I'm you writing. are very kind. Oh, thank no, you. It's not kind. And I'm so it's glad true. it worked for you. It, you know, most of the time, not, I would say 95% of the time, I hear people talk about that series they were they tell me that they were surprised um but i will tell you a funny story which is um so that was the fourth book in a four book series the first book in that series came out um a rogue by any other name and i was doing a tour for it in texas and it had been out for about 30 seconds <laughs> and i was uh, i did an event in texas and i walked into the bathroom after the event and a woman in the bathroom said to me, she cornered me in the bathroom and said, I think Chase is a woman. And I was so shocked because I had sort of, I was sure that in that book, we wouldn't have, nobody would have gotten it yet. Um, and I sort of backed up against the bathroom wall and I said, <laughs> um, well, Chase would be really upset if, he heard that from you <laughs> and then and I like that I went and like I hid in the bathroom stall for a while and um if you read the author's note on never judge a lady by her cover um I the last line of the author's note is an apology to that woman for lying to her because she knew all those years ago she knew she was she hurt she was a really <laughs> close reader she recognized that I never used gendered pronouns that's amazing. Um, when I was talking about about Chase, and truthfully, like I think most readers are not that close readers. I mean, I'm certainly not that close of a reader. So that woman, hey, if you're out there, you need to be someone's beta reader. Cause... I know, right? <laughs> My gosh, catch some things for me. Um, you have written twelve books. Is that correct? Yes. This okay. is my 12th, Wicked in the Wallflower. This, yes, 12th book. And uh, 11 of them historical romance. Your first one was YA historical? Or how would you, yeah, how would it you was classify his, this? It was YA historical. It was, a, it was basically a very clean historical romance um, about three, teen, three young girls in the Regency. Um, well, it's sort of a friendship. It's like a little bit of a friend book, a little bit of a romance book, a little bit of a murder mystery. It's sort of lots of things well i mean with so much historical romance um i have to assume you love it and what do you love most about writing historical romance i mean I, i've been reading historical romances they I, they were my gateway into the genre when i was you know 11 or 12 when i read my first two Devereux books um and so I think for me, there's that piece of it, which is just that they're sort of coded into my DNA. <laughs> they're imprinted <laughs> on me. So the idea of writing anything other than a historical romance just would never have crossed my mind 10 years ago when I wrote my first book. Um, but also, I think there's something really powerful about being able to write in a 
at a time period that isn't ours um, and being able to play with themes that are so modern um, in an old an, an older setting, largely because um, over the course of my life and my studies and, and my writing and my reading, I've come to realize that the role of women and marginalized people in general in the world hasn't unfortunately changed a whole lot. We're still fighting a lot of the same battles that we were fighting in the 1820s. And so um, while it, it was certainly worse then, and I would never argue that it's exactly the same, I would say that a lot of the themes still exist and they still feel really present and they still feel really important and they still feel like um, they're worthy of discussion and, and uh, it's sometimes rage. <laughs> so um, being able to tell those stories through a historical lens is always really interesting to me because I think it gives me a little bit more freedom to maybe say things that I, that would be more difficult to say um, in a contemporary because they'd feel a little more as my mother would refer to them militant. Mm. <laughs> I think you're right. I had never thought of it quite that way before, but I don't think historical rom romance would resonate quite so much still with the modern woman if we didn't have anything in common with them. Mm -hmm. um, if we were just like, oh, we're totally, you know, beyond the feelings of, you know, this that this person is having. And so obviously there's a universal thread. It's not just um, womanhood it's it's the situations we can find ourselves in so that's sure. really interesting and also I think there's a you know I mean I'm not going to deny the fact that good dresses are gorgeous and there's sort of there's a lot of like prince charming wrapped up in this kind of the mythology of the princess is very wrapped up in a in a in historicals no matter even if the hero's a duke <laughs> and not a prince. Um, so I think that's that's a piece of it too, this idea of you're able to rarefy the, the world um, in a historical in a way that maybe it's more difficult to do in a contemporary. When I had Megan Frampton on the podcast, I learned a new term, uh, wallpaper historicals. Mm -hmm. And she kind of helped me understand she kind of put some people on the wallpaper historical spectrum and she put you more on the research historical accuracy side and um and then when i was reading your latest book that's coming out i think by the time this podcast is released i started noticing more things that um i assume you've done research on like uh, lock picking and a whispering bench. So do you have to do a lot of research for your books or um, do you just know a lot about ice hold smuggling? I, I just know a lot. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's a fabulous um, podcast called 99% Invisible, which is about design in the world. And every episode is about some interesting piece of design in the world. And there is this great episode about, oh, I don't know, two or three years ago, um, about perfect security and how essentially security is a myth. And the reason why we put locks on our doors is to make ourselves feel better because there's no such thing as an unpickable lock. Um, but for about 50 or 60 years between the 18th and 19th centuries, there was such a thing as an unpickable lock. And it was called a chub lock and it was invented by an Englishman. And um, it couldn't, it was self protecting, meaning if it detected that you were trying to pick it, it would lock itself, it would jam itself, 
And the only way to unlock it was with a special key. Um, and nobody could pick it. And this, it was fascinating. This, you know, and, and what actually ended up happening was there was this sort of war between Americans and Englishmen um, where for 60 years people tried to pick this lock and um, finally somebody did. But and you should listen to that episode and hopefully, Lindsay, you'll put it in the notes, the show notes for this. I um, Is Roman, it a good podcast for kids? Because I can. Um, some of the some of the things are probably like, I don't know, I would say sort of older kids, like okay. eight, eight and up. Just yeah, minor, I, minor middle school. But I think that oh, sounds they like would love they, it. they would love to know about how stuff's made and everything. Oh, yeah. It's such a cool podcast. And the guy who, who who does it is a guy named Roman Mars. And he's just great. And I can't recommend this podcast enough. Anyway, so while I was plotting this new series and I knew I wanted to write a book, I wanted to write books that weren't about sort of ballrooms. And, and the Regency the way, and well, I don't write in the Regency anymore, but it's it sort of 19th century, the way that romance usually writes it. Um, I wanted to write about kind of underground smugglers and um, uh, I wanted that sort of darker element, um, which I've always sort of flirted around with my books. Um, and lock picking became a piece of it. And so the heroine got to pick the lock and um, got to be a lock pick. And uh, she does it sort of, as a nervous tick, <laughs> um, I guess that's the best way to describe it. Like when she's when it it makes her feel calm to pick locks. Um, and the hero, the hero is a smuggler, and so I had to do the research for that. And I'm very flattered that that um, Megan thinks that I you know do a lot of research. I think I I probably do a lot less research than it seems because I <laughs> um, I watch a lot of Frozen, <laughs> then I say. <laughs> Well, now, how does ice really work? <laughs> well, I thought that was ingenious. Okay, I'm just going to start talking about the book now. Because, please, um, please. I have just been, like, wiggling in my seat, trying, waiting to talk about it. So there is ice smuggling, which I was fascinated by. I And I don't – I'm just like, that was genius. Whoever came up with that, was that you or was that real? Well, um, the smuggling part is me. The ice ships is – real um okay. ice is obviously a commodity right um and before refrigeration existed there were there was a lot of demand to keep things cold because if you could keep if you could keep meat cold for example you could eat it for longer um you know uh, we talk a lot about um the most important innovations in history and i i think we often don't give refrigeration the this is this is super exciting for listeners. <laughs> okay, it, well, it is exciting in the book. I can guarantee you that because you make it such an integral part, of, yeah, so and it could be, even be like a larger metaphor, if you will, for sure. society or women or, or well, well, yeah, yeah. Ooh, ooh, that's well, good. Well, I mean, so, the issue is that they needed to bring ice right to London. Yes, London's a major metropolitan area. It needs to have ice. It's the summer. Ice doesn't come from England in the summer. Um, and so they were just bringing it on ships and the ships, but ice melts. And in the 1830s, it really melts. There's no way to keep a ship cold. Um, and so they would bring in hundreds of tons of ice and it would melt. And so the ships would come in up the Thames. They would have to come in on high tide. The Thames has a terrible tide, like high tide and low tide on the Thames are like vastly different so the ships would wait outside and they would come in during high tide almost sinking because of all the literal water that was inside them they were they were sinking mm. themselves um and i had this idea that like 
wouldn't it be cool? That would be a perfect way to smuggle, you know, contraband in because mm-hmm. nobody would ever, they couldn't get onto the ships to investigate the holds because there was so much water in them. Mm. Um, so it was really, so that was the idea. The smuggling was mine. Oh, that's so good. Okay. So it, we've, we've mentioned it before. I want to mention it again. The title is Wicked and the Wallflower and it, the hero and heroine's names are amazing. Felicity Faircloth and the devil, which, <laughs> which I think would have also been an outstanding title of a 19th century puritanical novel, Felicity Faircloth and the devil. Oh, um, we should have, it should have just been Felicity and the devil. That would have been hilarious. And, yeah. <laughs> um, it's good. I mean, those names are so good and you also use them to very good effect in the book. Um, and about the lock picking as well. Um, it, it occurred to me that you, there's a scene where Felicity is picking an, a lock and it's sexy and they are not even uh-huh. touching each other. And, and I'm just like, Oh baby, put it in. Yes. Twist it. And <laughs> I mean, it is so sensual and you can see, oh, it's so good. Um, but that's a first and that has to be a first in historical sexy lock picking. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, did someone compare it on Twitter to, um, the Italian, the Italian Italian job? job. Yeah. Well, I mean, heist movies are definitely my favorite thing in the world. So, I mean, if, if people see, see, uh, see the Italian job in it, then I'm all for it. So, well, it feels, I mean, I, it's not a heist though. I should, no, it's not. So let me just, like there, the locks are important to the book, but there's no steal. There's no, well, there is stealing. I mean, the hero's whole job is stealing, but the the heroine um, isn't stealing anything <laughs> exactly. except his heart. Um, heart. So your uh, very kind Avon publicist sent me a arc and a little um, PR package, and you know I like I said I've read all your books. I don't need the PR package, so I just dove right in. And while I was reading it, I, I swear to you, I'm like, this has a Peaky Blinders feel to it. I mean, it's very much like a Sarah McLean novel that everyone knows and loves, but I definitely got that. There was a scene where there's like a bunch of activity and movement, and I, it definitely felt like a Peaky Blinders thing. And so imagine my surprise when yeah. I actually open up your PR package. <laughs> and it says... It's very taboo, meets Harlots, meets Ripper Street, meets Peaky Blinders with smooching. Um, so I felt I felt very proud of myself and proud of you for actually doing that. Um, and I recognize all these shows except for one, and it's one you talk about on Twitter a lot. It's Harlots. Harlots. No one knows about Harlots, you guys. It's so good. <laughs> Here is your chance to evangelize oh my oh my for God. Harlots. It's so good Lindsay. you should stop talking to me right now and just go <laughs> just go watch every episode of harlot i mean so, like, okay so where is it where is it an amazon show it is a hulu show hulu okay that's probably that's part why. of the problem yeah Most people don't have hulu but it's you can watch hulu i'm gonna get this wrong i think but i you can watch hulu for free either on like on your computer you can watch hulu for free with ads but like hulu's like $16 a month just buy it for a month and watch all of Harlots but actually you should wait because the new season of Harlots is starting in July so you'll want to watch two seasons of Harlots okay. anyway Harlots is about brothels and bordellos in London 
in the 1700s. Um, so it predates my books by a lot. Um, but it's basically about sex workers. Um, the, the cast, the characters, the writers, the directors, the creators, they're all women. Um, the crew is something like 80% women. Um, and it is a show that was like the feminist bomb I needed at the, in late 2017. And I've since watched it like five times. I'm obsessed with it. And essentially it's about two competing bordellos um, <laughs> in the 1700s and the, like all the women who work in these bordellos and the like the sex work and the, essentially it just talks so much. It's a, it's a conversation about power and the way that sex and power interact and how women can claim power through sex. Um, it's super inter intersectional. It has lots of characters of color. It has queer characters. Um, it's um, set, obviously, the, the bordello, one of the bordellos is sort of a higher end bordello that services the aristocracy. The other one is a lower end bordello. There's a lot of class discussion. Um, it's so cool. It's so thoughtful. It's so important. And most importantly, it centers the female body and the female gaze and female sexuality and female pleasure and female power so perfectly that I just, I think it's, I think it's a tragedy that people, more people don't know about it. If you had a referral link, if you have a referral link, send it to me and I'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> I <laughs> will. I will. Like all I want is that when they announced season two, I was like, who can I write episode recaps for so that I can get screeners of this show because I'm so obsessed with it. One of the oh. creators follows me on Twitter and I'm like beyond excited about this. Like it was the most exciting day of my life when she followed me. And like, I'm, I love this show and I just want more people to watch it. I will definitely check that out. And But to your, to your point, like the, the idea was that I, I partially was just getting tired of writing you know, of writing aristocratic scenes with aristocratic people. Like I, I had just written a whole series that was really set in ballrooms and like country house parties with like women who wore beautiful dresses all the time. And I wanted to write something darker. So I started and I had just been watching all these period dramas and loving them. And not just because Tom Hardy was in two of them. <laughs> oh yes there was um, a moment at i was at a watch party for the royal wedding yeah at elizabeth essex's house oh and... you were... i saw that party on the internet and it looked yes. so fun it was amazing but when tom hardy showed up on <laughs> the screen half of the room went ah! and then some of the other people were like who's that I'm like, oh, i can't i can't with you well, he was real bald. That's he was also, real bald. Yeah, real bald. Um, yeah. No, well, my I got up at 5.45 in the morning to watch it here, and um, I, like, kind of padded into my living room, like, bleary-eyed, and I turned on the television, and I wasn't wearing my glasses. And I happened to turn the TV on right when the camera was on him, and I was like, oh, my God, Tom Hardy's at the real wedding. 
And I was like, this day is very on brand for me. <laughs> yes, yes. I was like, well, I had Idris Elba there too. So basically, all of Dream Romancelandia boat. got a everyone got wedding, it. and then there. God, wasn't that wedding the most amazing thing? Yes, it really was. And I've been reading and, and listening to podcasts and think pieces since then, and it really was just extraordinary in that it showed love and affection and intimacy in a way I don't think we'd seen before from that that genre no, of wedding if you will no I mean it's so it was so joyful and I just loved it. I gave it gave me such joy that yeah. whole the whole event so in fact I've been thinking a lot about um and bear with me while I draw this <laughs> parallel sure but you were you famously um after your last book and um it's at the tip of my tongue. Um, the Day of the Duchess. Day of the Duchess. You famously told the world about how you had a draft and you threw it out yeah. when things changed uh, in 2016. And honestly, like this wedding, I, I, I've thought about that several times in the last few days. Like, I just want to like throw out what I'm working on right now and start from this new optimistic modern place I'm not really sure what that um, is going to look like yet but I'm taking a cue from you <laughs> uh-huh. that it's okay to throw things out it is okay it's terrifying and not really doesn't feel great <laughs> no but I think that's so important I think you know I think you're really hitting on something Lindsay which is you know the world has been even I mean no matter what your politics are like you can't deny that the world has been really in a place for the mm-hmm. last 18 months. And um, and I think that the Royal Wedding, at least for us, for romance, the romance world, and I think also for kids, I think, mm. I mean, I think for women in general, and certainly for, I mean, I, I, I think for all of us, like the Royal Wedding really represented something very powerful and important in, in a way that I couldn't have predicted it would for me, like, you know, sitting on my couch with my four-year-old at six o'clock in the morning, it just felt so hopeful. Um, Like like everything will be okay in some way. And that's an amazing thing. Um, I mean, my daughter's in middle school. She plays the cello and she's sitting there watching it. And she's like, that kid's 17 and he's a person of color playing cello and millions of people. I mean, even something that small. For the Queen of England. yeah, For the Queen of England. Thing. And shes it's just like everyone could take something out of it and see themselves in different spots. Um, it, it was cool. I mean, yeah. I don't know. but Well, um, it just felt also like there was this moment of, uh, and this is going to, I don't know, this is going to sound probably kind of weird, but like. I had this very weird moment of like national pride while I was watching it too. Like this sort of like <laughs> Meghan Markle is the best of America right now. Like we are like we are I'm so conflicted about so much that is represented as America in the world. But like if Meghan Markle is like our ambassador to the world right now, I am on board for it, you know. I, I know exactly what you mean. When the preacher was preaching, and even if someone is not religious in America, 
that cadence, that accent, that tradition of American style Ah. preaching. I was just like that language that he used is what we are used to here. And Barack Obama and Martin Luther King, all the great orators is I'm like, I am hearing my language um, come back at me from Windsor Castle. And um, I got yeah. just, I just got cold chills thinking about that. It was and amazing. Thinking, like how far we've come since 1776. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh. um, but yeah, going back to your, your, the book that you threw out and the ways that the world changes and you were talking about in Harlots, you know, that we can start creating art to reflect um how we are seeing the world and for better for worse you know the bad ugly good parts um and so i want to thank you again for just being really honest with yourself and with your audience about the way you you know did have to throw out a book and start fresh from because you couldn't tell that story anymore and i think that your new book too is is you're seeing that too Um, i think the the new book is it's I mean, certainly, I'll, I don't. I hope I'll never be in a situation like I was with Duchess, where I woke up that I woke up shattered and just realized like I was. I had to change everything. Um, I was. It was a particular mood, <laughs> <laughs> and I hope I'm never there again. But the. Um, I think that there is. I think. The struggle, and and I I have certainly made a lot of people. Um, angry over the last, you know, however many months talking, being very public about, you know, how I reconcile the work that I'm doing and and my work as a writer with my politics as a person and my life as a human, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that um, a lot of people feel like, well, her books are going to be, you know, she must be putting her politics in her books. And and one of the things that um, I struggle with when I hear that is, there's a difference between politics, capital P, and politics, lowercase p. Um, mm. I don't think that, for example, I, I mean, certainly politics, capital P, can be seen in the through, in the story arc of the Day of the Duchess um, because, you know, there are little nods to Elizabeth Warren and the Women's March and the, you know, this, that, and the other. But the politics, lowercase p, are in every book written by every person. Um mm-hmm. And for me, Wallflower was very much about, um, Wicked and the Wallflower was very much about uh, telling a story about, you know, women in the world, which is a thing I've done for 12 books. Um, And I didn't think about it very much as like a political book, but I think my politics certainly are in that book, just as your politics are in your books and, and, you know, and, you know, everybody who writes writes with small case small small letter p politics um and i think that's a that's a struggle for a lot of people because it feels like they're they're afraid to open the book if you're a vocal um if you're vocal about your thoughts about the world but it feels like now is not the time to be quiet Right. A friend of mine um, recently received uh, some correspondence from a reader mm-hmm. and um, who complained that they were uh, being political by including a lesbian in oh, uh, in their book. And it, it was a side character, sure. um, you know, just someone who 
is living in the world. Happens to be gay. Yes. And um, she's just really upset about it. This reader is really upset about it. And is like, you don't need to be playing politics in this book. I want, I want an escape. I don't want to have to read about this. And it got me thinking, and a couple of other writers, we all started talking. And we're like, but everyone we put in our books is political. Everyone. Sure. If I put, they had a cat instead of a dog. It could be, you know, I have feelings about dogs. If I put, you know, I mean, I, I'm not trying to reduce all of no, it. No, no, no. And I and the people you don't put in your book also say something, right? So, right. Um, I think, oh, God. I, I mean, we I all get it, right? Like, my... <laughs> My favorite review for Duchess is a two-star review. I think it's on Amazon, and it says, like, um, you know, I don't come to historical romances. I wish I wish my favorite historical authors would stop putting politics into their books. Um, and what I love about it, and it's one line, that's the, that's the full review, and what I love about it is that it was two stars, because it was like, she couldn't bring herself to give me one star. <laughs> like... <laughs> She was like, I like, I enjoyed this book too much, right? Um, but I think that for your friend and for others, like those people, the the people who feel that way about human beings in the world being in your book, um, they're probably not going to like your books very much, yeah. ultimately. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's best to be rid of them. <laughs> no, it's I don't funny know. because. It's funny because my friend also had the same, the review also said something like that too. It was like, um, this would have otherwise been a charming and well-written book, except you put a lesbian in it. Sure. So, sure. <laughs> it just ruins the whole thing oh, for all of us. Terrible. Um, so yeah, you know what? So it kind of makes us not come want... back to your books and then you won't get a bad review. But it kind of <laughs> makes me want to write more lesbians. And, oh, of you know... course it does. It makes you want to write a field of them. And I you've mean, got some care. Okay, I have to ask. Um, yeah. Cat? Is that the? Cat. In, Nick. In Wick- Nick. Nick. Yes. Uh, yes. Is, is, the answer is, is yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. You should ask the question. For I don't really know what I want to know about her. I just want to You're more. asking, are you asking me if she's a lesbian? I don't know. I don't care. I just want more. Is she going to yeah, come back? She's coming back. Okay. Um, she she's coming is back. She? I'm and she is a lesbian. Okay. Um and and you will see uh she will have an arc. Um it's just not yet. Okay. I kind of so. figured, but I yeah, like I said, I didn't really care. I just thought she was a really cool character. And yeah. again, really cool characters can be lesbians too. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um and I think that I think it's more um a question now of being really conscious as a writer and and this is a thing that I think we're all going to have to come to in our own way with our own work, but it's for me it's it feels very part of the reason why I think I moved away from um, that sort of rarefied society, the the aristocratic society, um, is because I wanted to make sure that I I was able to portray London historically accurately um, and and really show the world that London was in the 1830s. Um, and it's hard to do that um, when you're playing with you know, that sort of super, super high class because you rarely get to show merchant class. Um, you, can, you can show servant class, but it has its own sort of issues, but you never get to see working class, like dock workers. You never get to see the merchant class. You never get to see like the middle class when you're playing with, you know, that sort of like high, high level. 
Um, and when we're talking about, um, you know, the truth of what the world looked like um, in the 1830s in London, it was incredibly diverse. And so being able to move into, uh, so moving the whole world to, um, or moving a series into a world that was, that is filled with merchant working, merchant class, working class, dock workers, um, suddenly it opens the doors to a variety of different characters um, who I had been writing kind of around in the edges, um, in the background um, mm-hmm. before this, but now I get to put them all center stage. Right. I mean, in, in 1830, England had control of how much of the world? And I know. And the some boat. of them, yeah, some of them would have traveled back in a boat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because, you know, the Royal African Company was had that it started in the 1600s. The East India Company started in the late 1600s. Um, so the boats go both ways. Dock workers, there's some data that say um, that dock workers in London were as much as 40% people of color. Um, you know, and again, like merchant class, working class, servant class. Mm-hmm. Um, we never talk in historicals about the fact that, you know, slavery was outlawed in the UK, you know, a good while before it was outlawed in um, the US, but certainly like there were many slaves in the UK. They were people of color, largely like those people all, you know, moved into society. They didn't, they didn't leave. Um, Right. They didn't poof in a magic smoke. Yeah. I mean, it was rare to see a Duke or a Duchess, but um, who was of color, but that doesn't mean that, you know, there weren't exceedingly wealthy people of color too so Mm. there's um it's a really interesting it's an interesting time to be writing romances and uh, historical romances that is and um i think we're all making really important choices now to show the world the way that it was well i'm really into a lot of these alternative settings and alternative um you know, if it's Egypt or India, I feel like I read those when I was a kid and then they yeah. kind of disappeared. I read some books. I know I read romances set in India when I was a kid. Sure. I'm scared well, to go back and look at them now. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. They <laughs> no. don't hold up. But um, I just remember being so entranced by, you know, learn because I was a kid. I wanted to learn about those places. And so, I mean, that's what I learned, but I would love to go back. And, and so I'm constantly asking for... um you know, people that write me some stories in other places. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would really love, and I, I talk about this a lot with, um, you know, in the world, but it, the struggle that I have with India is I really want, I want people, I want own voices stories yes. um, yeah. that are historical romances from India. And I know that that's a challenge. I know yeah. that it's, um, that it's not easy to tell the, to tell the story of colonization, um, particularly when you um, when you are an own voices author. Um, but gosh, I would love some India set historicals mm. by you know in Indian women. Yes, um, we're going to that universe. I, there might I be have, some. But that's the thing is, I'm always saying there might be some. I don't know it, so y'all exactly, bring it to me. Exactly. Um, I have asked many many people in the world who i think of as being having encyclopedic knowledge knowledge of 
the romance genre and no one has been able to provide me um, with a name. But if you are listening and you have a name, mm-hmm. please, please, please find me on Twitter and tell me. Yes. Um, give me recommendations because I would love to be able to read those. Um, but yeah, no, it's a it's a huge problem. I mean, colonization is tremendously problematic and we spend so much time as historical writers writing um, a world that doesn't ever even think about it. And that's, of course we do, because it's hard to do. It's hard to have that conversation. Um, but I think now what's really great about modern historicals is that we're writing with a, a with open eyes. Many of us are writing with open eyes. Right. And I think a lot of us don't have that conversation because we don't know what we don't know. And that's, you know, sure. you don't. And so that's why we going, it's like circular. We don't know what we don't know. So we need the books to tell us what we don't know. And exactly. then, you know, then we know what we want in the future. And um, I'm very inarticulate about that. But um, yeah, so I'm always constantly saying like, just y'all just tell me, tell me what it, there is and I will read it and and then we can get more of it. But speaking of, so you are asking for these books because part of your job is a reviewer for mm-hmm. the Washington Post. That's true. Um, you also keep a huge reading list on your website. Um, and I'm going to put that in the show notes because it's like worthy of a deep dive if anybody's looking for a, a good book to read. Um, but I have to ask you, because it's something I talk about a lot here. How do you keep your reading brain and your critique brain and your writing brain separate? Um, or is that not a problem for you? I... Um think I'm a voracious romance reader. I've never stopped that as my first job, my first identity. Um, so even as, I mean, I read a book a day and I read a book a day, even when I'm writing, I mean, maybe a book every two days when I'm writing, but when I'm really like on deadline, but I can't, I can't survive without the, without that piece. Um, so for me, I come at it first as a romance reader. The benefit of the work for the Washington Post is that I get to write, I get to just choose the three books of the month that I loved the most. So I don't have to critique publicly, um, which was part of my, when I accepted the job, that was the one thing I said I wouldn't do. I'm not, I'm never going to disdain the genre um, in public or, you know, books in the genre in public. Um, and so I, so for me, I just get to pick my favorites, which is so easy because I just get to sort of sit back, relax and read and read as a reader and then say like, this book is, it was one of my favorites of the month. And invariably, you know, every month there is a different reason why the books that I picked are my favorites. Some of them are tremendously fun and like sticky, lovely, like delicious confections. Some of them feel really important and they show how romance can exist uh, simultaneously as a, as a literary confection and also as something that teaches us or helps us grow or helps us know ourselves better. Um, and that that's just, a, it's just a fun job. And, and of course, when everything that I read informs what I write. Um, I hear a lot, you hear a lot of writers who say that they don't read in their genre um, because they don't want to, they don't want the noise of it. Um, they don't want to 
steal ideas or steal, you know, or, or end up writing something that's too similar to something that they read. But I think that that's, I don't think that's ever been a, con- a concern for me. And also I think um, the genre gets better as we iterate on each other. Mm, I like that. So, uh, and I mean, I think about that a lot because I, when I wrote the Rules of Scoundrel series, which is the the four book series we talked about earlier, it's set in a casino world, the four men or the three men and the, and the the heroine (laughs) own a, um, they own a casino together. And um, I plotted that whole book after I had read, you know, the instantly the back to back to back the first six or seven books in J.R. Ward's Black Dagger Brotherhood series. Um, because I was like, how do I write this like brotherhood of men in an interesting way and set it in a historical? And Hmm. so like without J.R. Ward's vampires, the rules of scoundrels wouldn't exist. And I don't necessarily think that there's much else that's similar about the two series, but I think, but she definitely informed that work. Oh, that um, is fascinating. Yeah, I never would have put those two together, but now that you say it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think I think the more we read in the genre, the more we learn from each other, right? And we can, you can find something really fascinating, really important in somebody else's book, and say, I want to explore that in my book too. And you know, you're not going to write the same book. That's so fascinating because for me, I'm mainly a historical reader, but I'm completely intimidated by the idea of writing a historical so I try to I've told myself before I want to try to write a historical in a contemporary setting um, which is a lot harder than you think because there's no carriages <laughs> no carriages too many cell phones I'm yeah. blown away every time I read a fabulous contemporary I'm I'm blown away by the bones of it like how do how do you tell a conflict-laden like emotional brilliant story at a time when you know it's really fine for you to walk away from the other person right it's fine for you to walk away or it's fine for you to go sleep with them just exactly. go sleep with them exactly <laughs> exactly i mean what's, what's the problem so great contemporaries for me and this just shows that you always we always sort of we always and admire the people who do the thing that we don't do but it feels to me like Contemporaries aren't the harder thing to do. Uh, writing a great contemporary is really difficult, I think. I, I would agree. I, yeah. <laughs> because I always get back to, where's the conflict? Why aren't you guys just shacking Why can't together? they be together right now? Yeah. Or and, not um, together. Like, why can't they just say, well, screw you then. I'm going to go on match and find someone else. Right. I have you single know? friends. I know <laughs> exactly. how it works these days. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, I I always look forward to your um, your re- reviews. Uh, although now that I know they're not technically reviews, I don't know, and that makes me love them even more because um, they are really books that you just picked out of your pile and were like, this these were the best this month, and that's that's fun. Um, but since you have such a huge list on your site and you have a column, so I normally ask people for book recommendations, but since you've already provided that, do you want to actually, I just, yeah, I'm happy. Okay. (laughs) So I, um, so I'll just give you a couple that I, that I thought were really great recently. Um, I just finished Naima Simone's, um, my first book by her, which was uh, scoring off the field. 
So anybody who follows me on Twitter and or knows me in life knows that I have a real problem with friends to lovers as like a concept. Like it takes a lot for friends to lovers romance to work for me because of conflict. I'm always like, I don't understand. These people love each other. They're already friends. <laughs> Why yeah. can't they just be together? Um, but this book was delicious. It's an un- unrequited love story. The hero is a football player. Um, the heroine is his best friend from high school. She's also his personal assistant. It begins with her quitting her job because she is like so totally in love with him and has been for like more than a decade and she just can't anymore. Like she she realizes that it is toxic for her and she needs to have her own life and she needs to um, just get over him. And he is destroyed by losing this idea of like losing this person who has not only like been his friend forever, but also is his assistant and like keeps his life in order. Um, and so it's really, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful story. That's like kind of a, it's an unrequited friends to lovers story. And I really, it was delicious and so sexy and just great. And it's part of a series and I have downloaded the next one. And that is, you know, probably going to be the book I read today. And then, um, the, uh, Kate, Claiborne's um, Luck of the Draw is I put in the column this month, but it is so good. I'm it's possibly one of the best contemporaries I've ever read. Um, it's a fake fiance story, but the heroine is a um, for the heroine has won the lottery with uh, three of her friends. The conceit of the series is each friend they it's three best friends who bought a lottery ticket and they win, and then it's like what they do with their money and how they find love. Um, and so she wins the lottery and she does what a lot of us would do, which is quits her job as a corporate attorney who does like pharmaceutical settlements for wrongful death. Mm. And as part of which, of course, I would quit that job right away too. And, um, she is, but she's still very like this, she's, she can't find joy. And she realizes at the very beginning of the book that the reason why she can't find joy is because she has a lot of guilt about the job that she did particularly in settling the death of a, a certain person. And so she goes to apologize to his parents and make amends. And she turns up at his house and at the house of the parents and um, their grown son is there. And he calls her on like the utter narcissism of this behavior, like this mm-hmm. whole, like how could you possibly believe that you coming here to apologize would be for us? It's not, it's for you. And she realizes it in the moment she like takes the, takes the knock, um, which I think is really brave of Kate to do because um, it wouldn't necessarily happen in a lot of books. But she takes the knock and she says like, I'm, I'm a big girl and if there's anything that I can ever do, you know, I'm sorry, but call me, like here's my card. And he's like, well, actually I need a fake fiance. And then it's like a fake fiance story, which is delicious. But then he's going, he has a great deal of guilt, deal of guilt over his brother's death. She has this like guilt over her culpability and like the resolution of the death. And um, it's like both incredibly thoughtful and important. And um, the the brother happened to die of an, uh, an overdose, an, an opiate overdose. So it feels really current too. Mm. Um, but then at the same time, it's a fake fiance story and who doesn't love that? Um, so it's delicious 
and highly, highly recommended. Oh, I can't wait um, to get to that. I read yeah. her first one. She was actually on the podcast. I met her last year at RWA. She's amazing. And I read her first one. I have not read that one yet. But um... Oh, I have this. I just downloaded the second one, too. So that's. Oh, uh, this is the third oh, no, one. Not that's the, right. no, this, I'm sorry. This is, is this the, the third second one? one. Okay. No, I just downloaded the first one because I haven't In read it? that one. It was it was amazing, and she needs she's to be so a talented. Star. She's a new author. Everybody should go read this book. It's so great. I love finding new authors, like brand new authors, because I always feel like if their books are great at the very beginning of their career, like we have decades to go of great books, and that's always useful. Um, and I have, I mean, I, I always have recommendations, but I'll just give you two and then <laughs> yeah. yes, you can link to the rest of, to my recommendation page, which I update oh, weekly. Almost. Um, do you only read romance or do you ever read outside the genre? I read a lot of his history. Like I read a lot of research texts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read, no, I mean, I'm, I would say like I, 95% of the books that I read are romance. I read, I read YA, um, sometimes. Could be that's why you're to... such an advocate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's where my joy is. Awesome. Life is too short for books that don't give you joy. I love it. Well, we are running out of time, so if you are prepared, I'd like to go into the lightning round. Yes, I am. Okay. Okay. All right. Let me. I know. Let me get into like the... one. You want like one word answers as quick as possible. If you want to. Now, I will say that most people, there will be a question where they have to go into detail, and that is fine. Okay. Because it's just, we're getting some some other info out of you. Okay. Sure thing. Dark or milk chocolate? Dark. Coffee or tea? Coffee. When your phone rings, do you answer it? Yes. How do you normally waste time on the internet? Oh, God. (laughs) Pictures of Tom Hardy with dogs. <laughs> worthy, that's actually, worthy. That's very true. Like, yeah, and especially if I'm having a bad day, my husband will come in and be like, "Are you just looking at pictures of Tom Hardy with dogs?" Yes, yes, I am. Is no one wasting loves time though. No one loves dogs like Tom Hardy loves dogs. This is true. Google it if you've true. never googled it. Google it. It's a thing. <laughs> Tom it's Hardy almost research. Actually. Clearly, clearly doesn't like people, but he loves dogs. <laughs> So, on your next vacation, will it be to the mountains or the beach? The beach. Do you call it soda or pop? Soda. On a romance cover, do you prefer abs, forearms, or a chiseled jaw? No. Um, abs, I guess. Okay. I'm thinking of those, um, I don't know if it's Jackie or J.C. Burton. The the ab covers, the sports covers, those were really terrific. So I'm going to go with abs. Okay. Um, Although on my last podcast with uh, Amy Reichert, um, we identified like a subgenre of abs. So there's like greasy tattooed abs and then there's white puffy shirt abs. And that. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I'm going to go with tattooed abs. Wait, was greasy not the was that supposed to lead me away from tattoos? No, 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 no. Like they usually look sweaty. Maybe sweaty is a better yeah, word. Yeah, like, like sweaty. Like like they have a really they have their own light source. Like Charlize Theron ads. <laughs> she has her own light source. Like it's like she travels with it. I think so. Yeah, but um, she were she would be those ads. 
And the very important last question, what are your feelings about turning to the last page of a book first? I always do it. Really? Always. I'm shocked by this, Sarah. <laughs> I I really am. So if it's like, there's a great irony to the fact that I wrote a series with like a massive twist in it because I hate them. <laughs> I mean, I love them. I love them, but I hate like, I hate not knowing. So I always read the end first. So if you had been a reader when you got No Good Duke Goes I would have known. You would it's have really, oh. it's really depressing when I think about it. And also because um, that book, when we released the arcs of it, we embargoed the epilogue so that people wouldn't know until oh. the book came out. Because um, we didn't so want, even the reviewers we were didn't so know. aware of like the spoiler, the spoiler being there that we were like, if it gets out in review, because if it gets out in, in the, before the books come out, then it'll be everywhere. Um, and so we did a whole like, please keep, keep Chase's secret campaign when it came out and people really did. Um, but I, I, I acknowledge that the irony of that is that I absolutely would have read Chase's secret first. And I think we'll end it there because I love that we started <laughs> off talking about Chase's secret and we're going to end with it. That's great. Good, a good story just always wraps itself back around. Exactly. So that's what we're going to do. Thank you so much for being on today, Sarah. I've really Thank enjoyed you, it. Thank you, Lindsay. This is so great. Thank you for joining us today. I started this podcast so I could have the conversations I wanted to have about books. And by listening, you're part of the conversation too. Contact me on our Facebook page or on social media if you want to talk some more or sign up for the fantastic newsletter please leave me a review. Five stars if you love books. Thanks and keep reading.